0: Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. we be looking at a text. Uh, Jesus shares some time with his disciples. Uh, we are continuing uh, a series that we started two weeks ago called uh, Bedrock, looking at the foundation of our mission and the tagline is building our mission on what matters most and you know as plainly and simply as I know how to say it uh, we build our mission on the gospel of Jesus period paragraph end of story Um, but once in a while we need to unpack what that actually looks like what does that mean when we say we build our mission on the gospel of Jesus and so over the next five weeks, uh, we'll be exploring uh, five core disciplines or foundational elements that we see evidenced in the gospel of what it, what it means to live a Christian life. What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be the church of Jesus? And so the five things that we're looking at, uh, serving, worshiping, Being a community, fellowshipping together, being a disciple and discipling other people, and being a witness. Those are five core disciplines that we need to have as part of our our church mission statement. And there are five core things that that are evident in the gospel that we need to have uh, as part of our Christian walk. And there's not really any particular order to them, uh, but you have to have them all. There's not one or two that are more important than the others. The, you, you can't build a foundation on four out of the five. How many have ever played that game Jenga? It's the little wood, little wood uh, blocks, and you put them together and you make this little tower in the Blocks go like three or four, and then they go the other direction. And the idea of the game is that uh, you take one of the blocks out at a time, and you keep taking out pieces of the tower until the whole thing falls down. Well, if you've played Jenga, you realize that you can take out, usually on the first try, the first turn, you could take out one of the very bottom foundational blocks and the, the, the tower will stand. But it's weakened it a little bit. It's made it a little bit shifty, and so that as you start pressing on that tower, uh, over time that foundation is going to collapse. You need to have all of the foundational pieces to hold our mission in place. And so with all of the, the emphasis that we have this morning on, on areas in our community for for local service, it it seemed fitting that today we would start off the series by talking about serving. And, you know, there's plenty of passages in our scripture that talk about being a servant, Uh, but I thought that it would be uh, good for us to look at a story where Jesus uh, teaches his disciples about being a servant, where Jesus models for his disciples what it means to serve other people. So I'd invite you to stand with me. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 20, and we're starting in verse 20. 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, so the boys are James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. "'What is it you want?' he asked. She said, "'Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom.' "'You don't know what you're asking,' Jesus said to them. "'Can you drink the cup I am going to drink?' "'We can,' they answered. "'Jesus said to them, "'You will indeed drink from my cup.' But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. All right, uh, I'll be the first to admit it. Uh, I like a good seat. Are you different than me? If you go to a concert or to a sporting event, you want to have a good seat. You know, I like watching hockey, and so when I go to a hockey game, I don't always get a great seat. But if, you know, the closer you are to the glass and the closer you are to center ice, the better your seat because you have a good vantage point. And in a hockey game, if you're up right up to the glass, you kind of really feel like you're in the action of the game. Or when you're going to a concert, it's nice to be up in the the front couple rows to to feel like you're part of the action. We were at an opera once uh, where we were so close to the front that we when they said the p's and the the, the p words, you could see the spit come out of their mouth. I mean, that's a they didn't have, you know, splash row seating labeled on there, but it seemed like that. But I'll admit it, I like to have a good seat. Are, are you different than me? Uh, I also like watching people, and, and, and uh, I'm thinking about how we line up for things. When you know, Southwest Airlines is a great example, and they've changed their policy a little bit, but years ago... You, when you bought a ticket on a Southwest flight, it was the first person to the airport got the best seats on the plane. Now they have, you know, you can, you can sign up ahead of time and you can get in these boarding groups. But uh, before, there was, you know, you could watch people. They would be there three hours before their flight would take off, and there they are, standing front, right in the, right in the front of the line. I'm, I'm getting on this plane first, and I'm picking my seat. It's important to have good seats, right? Uh, I think about, you know, some, you know, when you go to, to kids camp and junior high camp and high school camp, sometimes, you know, when, when you're trying to get in for meals, they line up all of the cabins, and, you know, there's lots of creative ways to get the kids to do things because they know, the, the counselors know, they want to be at the front of the line. So, you know, you can sing for your supper, you can do all sorts of things, but we like to have our, we like to have good seats, and we like to be first- especially when it's important. Um, when we lived over in Spokane, it didn't matter what time of year it was, but the hot ticket in town was to get into the Gonzaga men's basketball games. And so when they would open up the, the ticket offices for that or when people would line up, I don't know, a day or so in advance and camp out in the frigid temperatures just to be first in line to get a ticket, to get the good seats. Today's story, this is kind of on full display, is it not? Uh, Two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, and their mom come to Jesus. And, And just before our text, Jesus has told them flat out, hey, the reason why we're going to Jerusalem is for me to die. This is the third time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus has predicted his passion, as we call it. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to crucify me. I'll die a criminal's death. But on the third day, I'll be raised again. And so, immediately following this little vignette in Scripture, these boys come with their mom and this request— I don't think that they're connecting the dots here. I mean, this is the third time now they've heard Jesus talk about this whole death thing. They've proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, and for them, Messiah meant that, okay, he's going to kick out the Romans, we're going to set up a new political regime. Jesus is going to be in charge, he's going to be the king, and we're going to restore right worship in the temple. They liked that idea. And when Jesus started connecting his Messiahship to this whole death thing, it was a complete disconnect for them. They, they didn't understand it. I mean, that sounded upside down, backwards, sideways. It just didn't compute with these guys. And so James and John uh, come to Jesus, and it's very evident that they're not connecting the dots. And... They've conspired with their mom, who they've convinced to ask the question, Hey, Mom, ask Jesus a question for us. We, we want to sit at his right and his left. And Mom's like, Well, that, that sounds good. I want my boys to have places of, and positions of, of honor in this kingdom. And, and, and so she approaches Jesus with this question. Hey, you know, hey, Jesus, do you think my boys could sit on your right and on your left when, when you become king, when you assume this throne? wow, that's pretty bold, don't you think? And Jesus has just said, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And you're thinking about a good seat? You're thinking about, you know, front row, center ice? I don't understand. I imagine that he's thinking, what are these two yahoos doing on my staff? I selected these guys. I've been teaching them. I've been training them. What is going on here? I would say that this was one of those awkward moments in the gospel. You know, we we have the narrative in front of us, but, you know, if there were stage directions or, you know, just cues to give us, like, what the mood and the tone was like, I, I bet it was dead silence for a second. Awkward would be fitting. These guys want the front row seat. They want the VIP treatment. Maybe it's a family connection. Uh, James and John's mom, follow me here closely. James and John's mom was at the cross. We read about that in Matthew 27, uh, 56. Uh, If you go over to Mark, uh, Mark calls... James and John's mom, by name, Salome. And if you look at John's gospel, John calls James and John's mom uh, sister. So are you connecting the dots here? James and John's mom is Jesus' aunt. So mom is using the family connection here. Well, certainly the positions on the right and left when you enter into the kingdom should definitely go to family above anybody else. It's always the aunt who asks the question, right? (laughs) So somehow they have in their mind that as Jesus sets up shop, as he sets up this new political regime, that it's going to be family first on the right and on the left. James and John wanted these choice seats and you know, this, this also might be the first time on record where, where somebody calls shotgun. You know, you know what the rules of shotgun are, don't you? The rules of shotgun suggest that uh, as you're going out to your vehicle, as soon as the vehicle's in sight, the first person to yell shotgun gets to sit in the front seat, right? What I want to know is when you pull into the church parking lot... When the church is in view, why aren't you calling shotgun to sit in the front row? Now, just think about that. We want the place of honor. We we want the best seat. Jesus says, I'm not in charge of the seating chart. And if you think about it, when Jesus entered into his kingdom, when he was stretched out on the cross, there were people on his right and on his left. James and John said, when you enter into your kingdom, we want to be on your right and on your left. And Jesus says, really? Really? If you look back over at chapter 19, I think it's verse 28 or so, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. He's already promised them positions of greatness in the kingdom. But James and John, they wanted something even greater than what Jesus has already promised them. They want to have some special executive council that singles them out over and above all the other disciples. See, this worldly ambition that they're carrying, it's on full display, positions on right and on left, that's usually reserved for son, for heir. on the right-hand side, somebody who is of significant importance, you know, for now and in the future, and somebody who has power over parts of a kingdom. And then on the left, in, in, in the ancient kingdoms, a lot of times on the left-hand side of the king would sit the general, of the military people of importance. And James and John are saying, those are the spots that should be reserved for us. See, they wanted costless glory. They wanted personal success without personal sacrifice. They wanted Jesus to just uh, make that a nice super highway to success. Jesus, you can just speak it, right, and left. You know, if we think about it, it it happens now, too. People try to align themselves uh, with those who they think are going to be successful. If you think about politicians and sports figures and, and the scramble f- with sport agents uh, to to find the young athletes and, you know, just become their friend so that when the sports figure becomes big, they're right there. See, I've been with you all along. But it only is skin deep. It only goes... To the surface that you don't get much past the the sly smile once you get behind that or once failure sets in or something goes wrong those people disappear in a hurry see if i were jesus and it's a good thing that i'm not uh i think i might have been tempted to well let's just say be a little bit less than charitable with these boys I think. I think that I would have been tempted to tell them exactly what I thought about their power move here. I would want them, I would want to teach them a lesson of some sort that they would not soon forget. Uh, you know, maybe if this is a classroom kind of a setting, I would have. I would have wanted them to write a thousand times on the chalkboard. I will not do an end around on my fellow disciples. I will not seek positions of power and glory for myself. I had a teacher in, I think it was fourth grade, uh, when people got a little bit out of line in class, uh, we'd either have to write, well, I'm not talking about personal experience here, <laughs> but others in my class. And, you know, on special occasions, she would, she would draw a circle on the chalkboard, And so if you were out of line and and if you needed to be reseated for anything, once in a while she would have my friends come up to the chalkboard and put their nose in the circle for a period of time. Now, the circle was never at nose level. The circle was either a little higher or a little bit lower, so you were just uncomfortable. That would be a lesson that I wouldn't soon forget. See, if I was Jesus, I would have wanted to figure out something that would have drove home my message to these disciples. But not Jesus. (laughs) Jesus was patient, he's kind, he didn't lose his temper, he didn't get angry with their density. I mean, he didn't even call them any names. I don't think that we would mind if, if Jesus had just called them out as a bunch of uh, selfish, glory seeking, power hungry morons appearing to care only about what they got out of the whole arrangement. I wouldn't fault Jesus for that. But no, Jesus is patient, He's kind. Jesus has the cross on His mind. And these guys were thinking about the corner office. And when we think about the disciples, we've got to be really careful because it's easy to poke fun at them, but that's one that we get sucker-punched because the disciples are us. When we look into the lives of the disciples, we realize that their tendencies a lot of times turn the mirror on us. And that once in a while, we get caught up in thinking similar thoughts to them. So Jesus has the cross in mind. The disciples have a picture of a throne in their eyes. And when you have a throne on your mind, it's impossible to see the cross. When we have power and glory and prestige and and all of those things clouding our minds, it's absolutely impossible for us to understand the cross. See, Jesus responds directly to James and John. He says, you have no idea what you're asking for. No idea. See, in my kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And the positions of honor and power are, are meaningless in a kingdom like that. Before Jesus allows them to respond, he asks them a question. He says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, the cup language, if you look back in the Old Testament, is pretty significant. When we talk about the cup in the Old Testament, we're talking about a cup of suffering. We're talking about a cup of God's wrath, of punishment, of judgment, of scorn, of of shame. And Jesus says, I'm going to drink this cup. Can you drink this cup? That imagery had to be right at the forefront of their minds. But because of, the, because of the throne occupying their vision, they say, yes, 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 we can do it. We can do it. Sign us up. I'm in. We'll drink the cup, Jesus. Even though a cup of suffering didn't make any hill of beans difference to the disciples, they, they don't get it. They have the picture of the throne in their minds and, and this cup of suffering that Jesus is talking about. It doesn't compute. It doesn't matter what Jesus has just said because they're occupied with thinking about something for themselves. And Jesus says, you will drink this cup. But I'm not in charge of the seating assignments in the kingdom Then we get the other disciples entering the story. The party continues. These other disciples, the ten, they come in and they are indignant, which is a fancy way of saying they're angry. I don't know what they're angry about. It doesn't really say. It says they're indignant. My guess is that uh, it's one of a couple things. Uh, Either they are um, upset that... James and John are trying to use the family connection to try and elevate themselves above the other disciples, or they're angry because they didn't think about approaching Jesus and asking first. Whatever it is, the disciples are not happy that two, James and John, have gone to Jesus through their mother and said, hey, we want to sit on your right and on your left. Jesus, well, he takes this opportunity uh, for a teaching moment. He says, hey boys, huddle up, take a knee. I got, I, I got something to tell you. I want to tell you that the greatest role in my kingdom is the role of a self-sacrificial servant. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between the world's idea of greatness and power and what that looks like in my kingdom. And if you look at verse 25, uh, Jesus says that the Gentile rulers lord it over you. They don't really care about the people who are their subjects. As long as they keep the people at arm's length so when there's protest, they don't have to hear it, and as long as the people continue to send in their checks, they're fine and they're happy because that's insulated them over and above everybody else, and they can just continue to press their advantage for everything that they have. That's how the world operates. Jesus says, the Gentile rulers lord it over you but he says, it's not so in my kingdom. It's not so, it's opposite. See, in the worldly kingdom, where people don't really care about you as their subjects, and all they desire is absolute power, and let me just say the absolute power always corrupts. Jesus says, it's opposite in my kingdom. See, the kingdom reality is that if you want to be great, you Need to be a servant first. And if you want to press that a little further, if you really care about being first in line, well, you're gonna have to be a slave. Just a couple words there. Diakonos and doulos. It's a revolutionary thought. Diakonos means a servant. Doulos is Greek for slave. Jesus says, I'm your example. And he goes into the third person. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life away. You need to be like me, Jesus hints. The word that we translate for serve, diakonia, is one who serves, and the one who serves is a diakonos, which literally means one who kicks up Dirt. One who works so fast, but it's executing the commands of somebody else. You might say a diakonos is one that when when you if you were to command them to jump, they would say, How high. Diakonos, it means being a servant servant of a king, a a deacon, one who cares for the poor. The the best way for us to think about being a diakonos in the context of our ministry here is, is one who serves Jesus, one who picks up his cause, one who works passionately and diligently at that, one who carries on the work of Jesus. But he goes a step further. He says, if you want to be first, then you need to be a slave. You need to be a doulos. And a slave had no rights of their own. They had no claim to ownership of even their very person. Somebody else owned them. If you want to be a servant of Jesus, if you want to be first in his kingdom, it means giving up all our ownership rights. That's... That's pretty challenging right there. See, by this time in Jesus' ministries, I think the disciples should have gotten the message. Every time that Jesus has a passion prediction, though, the disciples behave a different way. When, when the first time in Matthew, when Jesus says, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, dead, and buried, and, but I'll raise again on the third day, Peter re- took Jesus aside and rebuked him, waved that finger in his face, and you will never, this will never happen to you. And if you remember, that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Second time, we read about it in in Mark uh, chapter 9. Mark tells the story where Jesus has predicted his passion for the second time. And Mark says that the disciples didn't understand and they were too afraid to ask him about it. Why were they afraid? Well, if Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to die a criminal's death, that meant that it was likely that they also would die a criminal's death. Because the way the Romans treated Messiah figures was they found the whole group, everybody in alignment with this person, and they killed him. They were afraid to ask. Two verses later, Mark chapter 9 Jesus says, "Hey guys, what were you? What were you talking about on this journey today?" And, and they didn't want to answer his question. Why? Why? Because they had been arguing about who was the number one disciple. Three verses apart. Afraid to ask because they don't want to be in alignment with a Messiah who's going to die. Three verses later. We're arguing about placement in the kingdom and being number one. And the third time is the story that we have in front of us today where James and John, they want, they want the positions on the right and the left of, of the power and the prestige. You know, from our perspective, having the whole story at our fingertips, it's hard for us to understand why they didn't get it Because it seems so plain and evident to us in the gospel. Guys, why don't you get it? Maybe they were too close. Maybe it was that throne that was in their vision. They couldn't see the cross, they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying because they were too focused on self and what I'm going to get out of it. See, Jesus has been healing the blind. Healing the sick, raising people from the dead, casting out demons. He's been serving other people in ways that met very specific needs in their lives. And the disciples have been part of that. They've seen the example. They've heard his teaching. Yet they have this vision of grandeur in their head. These thoughts that, I'm going to get ahead. I'm going to make it big. It's clouding their vision. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as a church? To be a church where being servants is part of our foundation. And what does it mean, actually, to say that being servants is something that we truly desire to build on? Well, there's a couple things about 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 being a servant, that I think are important. Uh, one is that God works in us to work through us. Uh, you know, when we read in the, in the Gospels, uh, I think about the examples that Jesus gave them and and the things that they he invited the disciples into. And I think of the story of the feeding of the five thousand, where the disciples saw a need. They're catching on. Hey, we see human need. And Jesus says, what? Feed them. And the disciples say, well, we don't have any money. We're out in this remote location. Do you want us to go buy food? They're thinking about all the logistics and how do we make this work. And Jesus says, well, you just give them something to eat. That doesn't make sense to us, Jesus. How's that going to work? And he says, well, what do you have? Go find out. And they come back with five loaves and two fish, and they hand it to Jesus, and he he blesses them and he breaks them and he hands it back and, and they distribute it out. The beauty of that story is that God works through the disciples. He doesn't go around the disciples. He needs their hands. He needs their feet. He needs their sight to see that there is a need. So as we think about that as a foundational principle upon which we build our mission, it's important for us to recognize that God works in us to work through us. God needs our hands, he needs our feet to see the need out in the community and then not just to see it, but to engage our resources, to come together as a community to try and meet this specific human need. The other thing that I see happening when we build a a mission on being servants is that when when you are serving other people, a community is formed and a community can be transformed. The work and witness team that we have down in El Salvador over the past several months has really become a small community because they knew that they were going to address specific human need down in El Salvador. And they came together and they would pray and they would talk about what the the ministry would look like while they were there. Think about um, Love, Inc., and the Lewis County Gospel Mission, and the, the Twin City Women's Shelter, and all of the other wonderful things that are going on in our community. When people come together to meet specific human needs, the communities transformed and communities emerge. People come to the Gospel Mission to eat, and to talk, to pray with people. It's a community. The people who go and serve, well, They've locked arm in arm with other followers of Christ, taking the love of Christ out into the world. There's community that's formed in that team. And collectively, together, those two can come together as you share the love of Jesus with them. See, if we don't have diaconia, serving, as one of our core disciplines, we're in danger of the church just degenerating into a bunch of religious consumers, looking only to be fed and, and caring only about having our own needs met and not looking how we can pass along the Lord's blessing to other people. See, in Micah 6.8, it tells us what's required of us says to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Well, two out of the three right there tell us to be advocates of other people who have a difficult time helping themselves. Encourages us to be full of compassion for human need. To work at reforming systems on occasion when they need to be changed. See, through serving, community can be formed and it can be transformed. So when, when we come together and we focus on being more Christ-like in our walk, individually and collectively as a church, as, as we respond to God's grace in our lives, we're going to seek to go where Jesus goes and do what Jesus does because that's what he has planned for us. See, we're not going to be concerned with the best seats in the kingdom the obstructed view seating is going to be just fine because we'll be spirit-gifted servants who continually look for need, specific need. Wherever and whenever God would show us that, we'll be ready to respond.